may be seated. And before we read the scripture this morning, just have a few comments uh, to make in preparation for it. But let's uh, bow our heads for a moment of prayer. Uh, God, we do need you. Thank you for this powerful song that reminds us of our inherent weakness and helplessness apart from your grace. Come, Holy Spirit, come. Come and speak to us and crack us open. God, just open us up to deeper realities of just how desperate each of us really are for your love, your mercy, and grace. In this I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, uh, I sinned recently. Um, I mean, I really did, and I felt terrible about this particular sin. I was very frustrated. I was sleep-deprived. Uh, I was having a migraine at the time. And frankly, um, my flesh got the best of me. In a moment of stupidity, I cared. Somebody that I care about in this church very much uh, I hurt them unintentionally, and I really regretted it, and I've been trying to make that right with the individual, but, um, but the, the, the selfish sin nature that is in me uh, truly did get the best of me. I, I don't know if you know this or not, but pastors are tempted to sin just like you are, and uh, sometimes we, we uh, yield to it. Uh, pastors struggle with pride. We have bad attitudes, just like you have proudful moments and bad attitudes. We get angry and frustrated. Um, it doesn't happen often, but I've yelled at my wife. Um, and I have uh, unfairly uh, yelled at my children when they were younger. Uh, sometimes pastors screw things up. Our sins are not unlike yours. We are flawed human beings just like you. Now, I don't know if that's news to you or not, but, um, but one of the things that God said to me as I was working through this, this situation that happened uh, just a few weeks ago is simply this. I am a sinner who stands in a pulpit preaching to sinners who sit in the pews. Amen? And I'm leading a study right now uh, on Wednesday nights and Sunday mornings on the life of the Apostle Paul using uh, Adam Hamilton's book, The Call, which is about the life of Paul. And early in that book, uh, Hamilton makes this observation, which I love so much. He says, he says, part of what I love about reading Paul's letters and studying his life in Acts is that his humanity clearly shows through. Paul was a great leader, a remarkable theologian, and a courageous apostle. But he was also a human being. Like most of us, his greatest strengths could also be his greatest weaknesses. Paul's dogged determination meant that occasionally he was ungracious toward those with whom he disagreed. And at times he lacked mercy toward those who disappointed him. And here in Romans chapter 7, we get a very um, raw and transparent look at Paul's humanity as he talks about his struggle with sin. And I'm going to read to you now from the uh, contemporary English version. Uh, Romans is a difficult book for many to understand. Uh, some of the phraseology and the words that are used make it difficult to, to connect the dots. 
but I think the CEV does a good job of putting Paul's words into the modern language that most of us speak every day. So listen now to God's word. I don't understand why I act the way I do. I don't do what I know is right. I do the thing I hate. Although I don't do what I know is right, I agree that the law is good. So I am not the one doing these evil things. The sin that lives in me is what does them. I know that my selfish desires won't let me do anything that is good. Even when I want to do right, I cannot. Instead of doing what I know is right, I do wrong. And so, if I don't do what I know is right, I am no longer the one doing these evil things. The sin that lives in me is what does them. The law has shown me that something in me keeps me from doing what I know is right. With my whole heart, I agree with the law of God. But in every part of me, I discover something fighting against my mind. And it makes me a prisoner of sin that controls everything I do. What a miserable person I am. Who will rescue me from this body that is doomed to die? Thank God, Jesus Christ will rescue me. This is the word of God for the people of God. So sin, it's, it's something we don't talk about all that much. Um, and yet Christianity would not exist without sin. Did you ever think about that? I mean, there would be no hymn called Amazing Grace that we sang together just a little while ago without sin. There would be no old rugged cross. There would be no Savior. There would be no Jesus. The angel told Joseph that he was to, to name Mary's child Jesus, which in Hebrew means God is salvation. You shall call him Jesus, the angel told him, for he will save his people from their sins. Sin is real, no matter what modern day people uh, want to call it. Uh, and the mission and the purpose of Jesus was to, 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 to come against sin head on, to die for it in his atoning sacrifice and defeat it with his resurrection power. Yet we struggle and try to pretend we're okay, that we're not really struggling. In fact, one of the complaints that you still hear today that I've always heard as long as I've been to the church, and I'm guessing in the first century they had a similar kind of thing going on, but people said Christians are hypocrites. And it's our hypocrisy. It's the wearing of a mask. It's not being real and authentic and confessional about our struggles and about our sin that makes people distrust us or dismiss us to, to, to not take our message very seriously. And yet, the fact is, we do struggle. In Exodus 19, going all the way back to the Old Testament, God reveals himself to his people at Mount Sinai. There was thunder, there was lightning, there was fire, there was smoke. Moses 
talked with God on the top of the mountain, and when he came down to the people, he told them the message that the Lord had for them. And do you remember what the people said to Moses? They said, Moses, we will do everything the Lord has commanded. But it didn't take them very long to rebel and to disobey. They could not, as Paul says here in Romans 7... They could not keep God's good law despite having good intentions to obey its every word. Now, I grew up with the Peanuts comic strip. It's always Charles Schultz, who's been with the Lord now for a long, long time, was always my favorite cartoonist. And um, this particular uh, strip appeared back in the 1960s. And there you see Charlie Brown and Linus. This is like the day after Linus has had uh, this terrifying conversation with Lucy, his sister, about the divided heart. And he says, Lucy says that half of our heart is filled with hate and half is filled with love. And, and you can see his anxiety rising. And she says this hate and love are always fighting within us, always quarreling battling, struggling. And then the third panel, it's like he's about to have a nervous breakdown. I mean, it's just the, the thought is overwhelming him, and then he yells at the top of his voice, Peace! Peace. And I wonder if Charles Schultz, who was a lifelong Christian, was thinking about Romans 7 when he drew that strip. William Faulkner, in his Nobel Prize speech, said that the most important subject of literature was the human heart in conflict with itself. The human heart in conflict with itself. Over 40 years ago, uh, George Lucas began writing a script that went through multiple revisions that eventually resulted in the film, 1977 film Star Wars, which gave birth, as we all know, to nine other films. I think the tenth one's coming out here right before Christmas, and I'm going to be standing in line to go see it. Uh, but, but Lucas's original film, Star Wars, uh, laid out for us this this great struggle, universal struggle between the light and dark sides of the force, between good and evil that is described in every major religion on the face of the earth. They have different names. They have different interpretations uh, as, as to why this is so. But Lucas was trying to gather in all of these these realities from these various religions and put it in a folktale, in a story that would connect with people and help people to understand that the human heart is in, fa in fact divided. It is in conflict. William Carter has said, we don't like looking too closely at the dark side of human existence unless, of course, we can turn it into some form of entertainment. But all of us know it's there. All of us are acutely aware of the dangerous power of sin. True story. A preacher went to see a man in the hospital who smoked cigarettes his entire life. And his doctor told him, you got to quit. So he changed doctors. And, uh, and not long after that, he got really, really sick from emphysema and was hospitalized. And the doctor said to him, a new doctor of course, 
you've got to stop smoking. But he couldn't. And sometime later, he was diagnosed with lung cancer. And another doctor, a surgeon, removed the cancerous lung. And it wasn't long after that that his voice box had to be removed. And a tracheotomy was performed. And he was breathing out of a, 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 a pipe, uh, a tube from his throat. The pastor went to the hospital to visit him yet again. He was not in his room and he eventually found out from the nurses that he was out by the loading dock smoking a cigarette through the tube that was emerging from his throat. And the pastor said, why do you keep doing this to yourself? Why? Paul says in verse 15 of Romans 7, he says, I don't understand why I act the way I do. I, do, I don't do what I know is right. I do the things I hate. Now, a lot of scholars believe that, that Romans 7 uh, is Paul talking about his old life before he was actually converted. Uh, and there is some merit to that theory. Um, because Paul says in chapter 6 of Romans, he says that, that the sin nature has been defeated. We're no longer controlled by sin. We are filled with the righteousness of God, etc., etc. Uh, he, he talks about this new life, this new reality for the believer. But the thing that's interesting is that in Romans 7, he starts using the present tense to talk about his life in terms of, of the current reality. Even though these things are true about what God in Christ has done for him, about the freedom that is his, that what the chain breaker has done for him, he says, you know, there's still a battle going on inside of me. And it's going on inside of us as well. Listen again to what Paul says. Verse 14, the trouble is with me. For I am all too human, a slave to sin. Verse 18, the sin that lives in me is what does these things I hate. Verse 19, my selfish desires won't let me do anything that is good. Verse 21, something in me keeps me from doing what I know is right. Verse 22, in every part of me I discover something fighting against my mind. Verse 23, I am a prisoner of sin that controls everything I do. And then verse 24, he says, I am such a miserable human being. We would say, what is wrong with me? Paul knows he's been saved by Jesus. He's been called to be an apostle. He's been filled and gifted by the Holy Spirit. And yet there is another force working in his life called the power of sin. Sin, according to Paul, can be understood in at least two ways. These are two of the predominant themes you find in the, in the New Testament in Paul's writing. The first one is that sin... And this is how we usually think of sin. Sin are any acts, any behaviors that intentionally or unintentionally turn us away from the will of God, from the way of God. The Bible is full of lists of various sins, right? And we know what a lot of them are because we've broken them. We've done them. We've experienced them. I remember going off to Cedar Lake Camp when I was in elementary school. And um, I was really an ace shot with a 22 rifle. I still had the little target 
from, from the rifle range. I was good at shooting a rifle, but I was a little bit scrawny and not very strong, and I was lousy at shooting a bow and arrow. I, I could not hit the target. In fact, I missed the bale of hay. I was so bad. And it was embarrassing to me and frustrating to me that I couldn't shoot a straight arrow. And the word that Paul uses for sin 52 times in the New Testament is a Greek word that literally means missing the mark. And so sin is missing. It's missing God's best, God's will, God's purpose uh, for, for our lives. It's missing the mark. And we all do it. In fact, Romans 3.23 says, All have sinned and fall short of God's glory, of God's holiness and His righteousness and His standard. We, understood that, we understand that about ourselves every single day if, if we're living a self-aware, honest, transparent life. But sin is also a condition of the heart. It is part of our human nature. 1,600 years ago, St. Augustine, the... Uh, beachfront community that we call Augustine, St. Augustine, is named after him. Uh, St. Augustine, or Augustine as he's often called, was one of the single most influential theologians in the early church. Had a great impact on the western side of, of Christendom uh, for many, many centuries and to this day. And in his autobiography, titled Confessions, he tells this story from his youth about stealing pears from his neighbor's tree. He was part, and I'm not making this up, he was part of a group of teenagers that called themselves the Destructors. That sounds like a gang, doesn't it? A, a gang out of Chicago or L.A. or something. They were the Destructors, and, and these youth went into the neighbor's yard after dark, and this tree was loaded with pears, and they just shook it and shook it and shook it, and they fell out all over the ground. They gathered them up, and they fed them to hogs. And Augustine writes this about it, probably about 20 years after the fact. He says, we carried off a huge load of pears, not to eat ourselves, but to dump out to the hogs after barely tasting some of them ourselves. Doing this pleased us all the more because it was forbidden. Such was my heart, O God, such was my heart, which you did pity even in that bottomless pit. Now, Augustine goes on to berate himself because as a teenager, he loved that moment, that sin so much, that act of mischief. And some of us have done something similar, haven't we? We were kids, rolled somebody's yard, took something that didn't belong to us, etc. But he, he saw that moment, which, which occurred years before his conversion, as being um, emblematic of what was desperately wrong with his heart before he came to Christ. In fact, Augustine could have mentioned, the, mentioned that, that he took a mistress as a young man. He gave birth to a child out of wedlock. He indulged in every fleshly passion imaginable. Yet the sin of stealing pears from a tree stuck with him his entire life. There's something about our human nature, he said, that causes us to sin. 
which Scott was explaining to the kids this morning. He wrote later in his life, whatever we are, we are not what we ought to be. What a profound insight. And I mean, I counsel and care for people, have for all these years as a pastor. And I mean, I I could spend an hour just telling stories of people's confusion, their bewilderment about why they did certain things in their life that that ended up being very self-destructive and damaging to people they love and care about. And it's like, what is going on here? I mean, why did I throw my marriage away through a reckless affair? Why did I do that, Pastor? Why do I lose my temper and blow up with my child? Why, why can't I be content with what I have? Why do I want my neighbor's house more than my own? Why do I covet their new car and, and find myself so unhappy with my own? Why can't I forgive that person that deeply wounded me, even though they've asked for forgiveness and are deeply repentant? Why do I let things get me down? Why do I insist on being right all the time when I know that I'm not? (laughs) Why why am I so arrogant and self-assured when I should be humble? Why can't I be positive and cheerful all the time? I mean, the whys go on and on and on, don't they? Why, why, why? Well, theologians call this orientation towards failure, the fall, original sin the flesh, the old man, and some just say moral depravity or human depravity. A lot of big words and terms. Some are easier, more easily understood than others, but but they essentially deal with the essence of sin, which is the exaltation and the worship of oneself. In fact, when I was in Bible college, I remember I had a professor. He said, the essence of sin is placing I first and not God. And he wrote sin on the blackboard and he put a big gigantic eye in the center of the word. And that really stuck with me. And it still rings true to me uh, as I have my own struggles with darkness and light, with, with the, the draw of the flesh uh, and, and this... this uh, sin that still is in me as opposed to what the Spirit is moving in me and saying to me and wanting me to be and do. Our helplessness as sinners could easily, could easily be a reason for hopelessness. But, but God is concerned about hopeless and helpless sinners. And... Um, He provides a way of rescue. And what is that way of rescue? Now, here's what I find so amazing. After a lengthy, graphic description of his own struggle with sin, I mean, it's a bunch of verses there. I didn't even read all of Romans 7. After going through in great detail... This, this internal struggle, it's like he can't say it too many different ways. It's, he wants us to really understand it. In one single verse, verse 25, he tells us what the answer is. Beginning in verse 24, he says, What a miserable person I am who will rescue me from this body that is doomed to die. And here's verse 25. Thank God Jesus Christ will rescue me. Jesus Christ will rescue me. 
And we're not talking about Jesus as just kind of an add-on, you know, like, like leather seats in a car. Um, I was driving, my, my dad, by the way, is here with a longtime friend. Uh, it's so great to spend the weekend with him. And I was driving his, his car, and um, my hands started getting really hot. And it's got a heated steering wheel. I didn't know they did that to cars now. And then it was buzzing my butt while I was driving. If I got in the wrong, if I crossed the line or got in the wrong lane, then I'm getting a little, little vibration there on either side, depending on which side it was. It's kind of amazing. Uh, I want one of those. I, if, if you're a bad driver, you get a massage. That's all I'm going to say. You get a little bit of a massage. But sometimes people think if they just, you know, pray in Jesus' name or if they just say they believe in Jesus, oh yeah, I'm a Christian, that that's what it means to have the victory that Jesus provides for us. It's just a little accessory. No, no, it is at the heart of the Christian life that you live your life surrendered and yielded to Christ and that He is your friend, your companion, your savior, your Lord, your master. He is your chain breaker. You rely on him. You trust in him. You walk with him. You talk with him every single day throughout the day. That is what Paul is addressing here, the kind of reality that he's talking about. Not something that's superficial or just lip service as it may be. We've always heard God helps those who help themselves. Anybody ever heard that? Yeah, you may have said it. But really, biblically, it's actually Jesus helps those who are aware of their helplessness. So I have two simple suggestions as I bring my message to a close. Number one, confess your helplessness over sin. Confess your helplessness over sin. You remember the story of the prodigal son? When he's out there far away in a Gentile land, uh, this Jewish boy, he squandered his inheritance. He's starving to death. He is longing to eat pig food, unclean pigs. He, he'd give anything to have the pods they're eating in their pig pen. And he comes to his senses and he says, I'm going to go home and I'm going to tell my daddy, I am no longer worthy to be called your son. No longer worthy. There's just a, a humble admission of helplessness in that moment by this young man. And Jesus says that's the kind of attitude that we should have. That's, that's the message in part of the parable of the prodigal son. We are all human beings and human beings make mistakes. We sin, including pastors. Where else other than the church do you find places you can go and be real and authentic and admit your sins, confess your sins. Maybe an AA group or Al-Anon, some other support group, but you know, generally, we try to hide our sins. And it's got to be really, really bad for a politician or a rock star or an athlete or some other uh, you know, public kind of person to, to come out and admit that they have sinned in some significant way. We, we try to cover it up. We, we, we try to deceive others as to the seriousness of it. Uh, we say everybody does it, etc., etc. That's not the way it's supposed to be in the church. We're supposed to acknowledge readily 
that this is a hospital for sinners. And everyone here is sick. Everyone here suffers from this malady called sin. And so James 5.16 says, Confess your sins to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. The more we are open and transparent in appropriate ways, in appropriate settings with one another about our struggles with sin, the better off we will be as a church. The healthier we'll be as disciples of Jesus. But the second thing, as I want to tell you the obvious, but sometimes people forget it, is that we need to confess that our hope is in Jesus. That is what Paul did in Romans 7, 25. The only way your sins can be forgiven, the only way you can be delivered from the, from the power of the law of sin and death is through Jesus Christ. Paraphrasing the Apostle Paul, I make this my confession. Even as I struggle with my own shadow side of my humanity, this is 1 Corinthians 15, 9 through 10, the Greg, Pastor Greg version. For I am the least of the clergy, unworthy to be called a pastor, but by the grace of God I am what I am, and the grace of God toward me has not been in vain. Has not been in vain. I taught you at the beginning of this series of messages, this ancient prayer that came out of the monastic movement in Egypt many, many centuries ago. Lord Jesus Christ, Son of God, have mercy on me, a sinner. That is my prayer. And that ought to be your prayer as well. As we prepare to sing our closing song, would you just bow in prayer with me? Lord, I know that you have uh, forgiven me for my insensitivity and my stupidity, uh, for that hurtful thing I did. Um, I know there are a lot of other things that I have done over the years um, that um, betray this internal struggle that I have, that we all have. We, we want to be real with you and with one another. We don't want to pretend and make believe that we've got it all together. Help us, Lord, to be humble, to be genuine, to be authentic. Help us to be a church where people can come, no matter what they've done, no matter how far they have wandered away from you and your will, where they can come here and they'll be loved unconditionally. They'll be embraced and just as the father did for the prodigal son, we'll put a robe around their shoulders and a ring on their finger and sandals on their feet and say, welcome home, let's have a party. Uh, thank you, Lord, that you are that kind of God. This wouldn't have made it this long if that wasn't true. And I pray for those that are at the end of their rope here this morning and are needing to hear that word of hope and of mercy and of grace. In Jesus' name, amen.